Well, possibly the greatest theologian in the history of the church, St. Augustine, he wrote in his famous work entitled Confessions, he said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And this was the message of the writer to the Hebrews in the first part of chapter 4, which we covered last week. But again, the writer takes up the subject of calling this suffering Jewish Christian church to maintain their faith and to not fall away from it because of suffering. And he does it by turning their attention to their suffering high priest. A high priest who can sympathize with them in all of their weaknesses. And even as he does so, still provide the beginnings of a victory that are someday going to overcome all suffering because of his ministry of mediation before the Father. Young Christians and theologians, this morning I have two things for you as you're listening to the sermon. I have one thing for you to do and one question for you to answer. What I have for you to do is this. The Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus serves in three different offices for His people. He serves as our prophet by teaching us the will of God and all that God has done for our salvation. And He serves as our King by ruling over His people and guiding them, protecting them, and defending them. And He serves as our priest. And if you like to draw, take up some space on your bulletin and maybe draw pictures of these three offices. Jesus as prophet and as a king and as a priest. That's what I have for you to do, if you'd like. But the question that I have for you to answer is this. What is a high priest, and why do we need Jesus to be our high priest? This is the good news of the bold access that we have to the throne of grace because of a high priest who is a sympathetic mediator, and it's found in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, but we don't come to you alone. We come to you through a mediator, and that mediator is your perfect son. We stand clothed in him, in his grace, in his perfection. We come to you boldly and expectantly this morning, asking that you speak through your word to our hearts and minds and give us ever greater confidence and peace to approach you boldly through Jesus and by prayer. We ask these things in Christ's name and by the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Sometimes the true story is better than the fabricated one. I was prepared and ready to share the story this morning of Abraham Lincoln's son, Thomas, who was nicknamed Tad. And the story goes that in the days of the famous president, many people would clamor to get an audience to see him, something that was much easier for the common man in those days than it is now, of course. One particular soldier asked to see the president at the White House several times, and each time he was turned away and told that the president was too busy. One day after being turned down again, suddenly a young boy turned up and took the soldier by the hand. And the boy led the soldier right past the guards and past the line of visiting diplomats and politicians and right into Lincoln's office saying, Hi, Dad. This man really wants to see you. But the problem is, when I looked up the veracity of this story, I couldn't find it anywhere. Instead, the true version goes like this. Tad Lincoln was an entrepreneurial spirit, always looking for a way to raise money, often for charities and to support military hospitals during the war, and probably sometimes just for candy money or to buy Star Wars paraphernalia. And one day he came to his father's office and said, Hey, Dad, I got some friends here who would like to see you. Would that be all right? The president determined that a couple short visits couldn't hurt, and soon one person after another is coming in to Lincoln's office. Tad would bring the person in, and ask their name, and then say, well, this is my dad, the president. And Lincoln really started to wonder why Tad didn't seem to know any of the names of his so-called friends. And so when he looked into it further, he found out that Tad had a long line of people waiting outside the door, and he was charging each of them a nickel to say hi to the president. And evidently, Lincoln just shut it down right then and there when he found out what was going on. Some people want access to the throne room, and they think that anyone can just walk right in because it's their right to do so, and it's God's job to never shut his gates. And then some people are terrified of thinking that the one sitting on the throne would ever delight in seeing them at all would ever want to grant them an audience or to know them. But the truth is neither of these. 
Access to the throne is proclaimed to all, but all who come cannot come alone. But they must come through and with a mediator. And this mediator doesn't charge for his services because you and I couldn't pay the price if he did. No amount of polishing our morals, no list of promises and vows to keep, and certainly no money paid to the church could impress the one who's sitting on the throne or could pay the cost of admission in any way. Access to the Father's throne room is before us, and it is gained through His Son. But His Son has paid the price for all who enter at the cost of His own suffering, His own hardship, and His own hard-won obedience. The Son isn't using His position to manipulate or make a quick buck, but rather to re-enter the pains and to re-enter the sufferings of His people by sympathizing with them because of all the things that He suffered first. And because of this, we have eternal access to come boldly into the throne room. This is the message of the writer to the Hebrews in chapters 4 and 5 of his letter. And that's all I have. You can go home. No, I have a little bit more than that. But just to be clear and transparent up front, we're not going to go through this passage chronologically from the first verse listed to the last, but instead we're going to go through it thematically. First, seeing how Jesus gives us access to the Father as the new high priest. Secondly, finding comfort in Christ's sympathy for his people. And then finally, grasping what it means to have bold access to the throne of grace. This section, beginning at chapter 4, verse 14, it's really the starting place for what is the fullest explanation of Jesus as the eternal high priest of the new covenant that you're going to find anywhere in Scripture. It starts here, but it runs all the way through the middle of chapter 10, actually. And it's where we're going to be for a while in the next several Sunday mornings. But throughout this morning's passage, the writer of the Hebrews goes about proving Jesus' priesthood through a series of comparisons between him and the, and the, the priests of the Old Testament. The author shows what Jesus and the priests under Moses have in common, and then he goes on to show what they don't have in common at all. In terms of what they share... The first four verses of chapter 5 show how, from the beginning, every priest has had to meet two basic conditions. First, a priest must be divinely appointed to his office, as shown in chapter 5, verse 4. And secondly, a priest must be able to identify with, to sympathize with those he represents, which he argues in verses 1 through 3. The role of a priest, as the writer says in verse 1, is to be a mediator. It's to be a go-between, an agent of reconciliation between men and God. He's a mediator who provides access. And as such, the priesthood couldn't be a matter of self-appointment. A mere claim to feel let. 
or claim to have had a quiet time with God that was so on fire, everyone else must now listen to what you heard or want to proclaim. It wasn't enough. A priest had to be called by God, which largely had to do with being from the right tribe, the tribe of Levi, and further related to Aaron's lineage in the tribe of Levi. But as the writer quotes from Psalm 2 here in verse 5, in Jesus' case, even being the very divine Son, light from light, true God from true God, didn't mean that he seized his appointment to the high priesthood for himself. In his humility, Jesus was appointed by the Father as well. He was appointed to be the Davidic Messiah, holding the office of king, as he quotes from Psalm 2. And in the same way, the writer of the Hebrews argues that this divine human person, Jesus, was appointed to be the eternal high priest, as he quotes from Psalm 110 in verse 6. And as a side note, just so you know, by the way, we're going to dive deeper into the Melchizedekian, there's a $64 word, Melchizedekian priesthood. We'll dive more into that theme and that subject when the writer to the Hebrews gets to chapter 7, when we get to chapter 7, because in that chapter, that whole subject of Jesus' relationship to Melchizedek is explored in depth. So we're going to intentionally ignore that this morning. But priests were not just appointed priests of the Old Testament were expected to deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, meaning that they needed to be men of great patience and sympathy and understanding. These were men who would daily come into contact with the worst sin of Israelite after Israelite as the whole nation of people would come to confess their darkness and bring their sacrifices year-round. They could not do their jobs of interceding for the covenant people at all if they were always becoming exasperated and severe and provoked by all the wrongdoing around them. But note one of the chief reasons that the priests of the Old Covenant could be gentle and patient in verse 2. It's because of their own weakness. Because they were obligated to offer sacrifices, not just for the sins of those who came forward, but for their own sins as well. Here at New St. Peter's, you've probably seen it many times, but we seek to continue this needed confession dramatically in our liturgy, which is why the preaching pastor will leave the first step down here and go and sit down with the rest of the congregation during the weekly confession of sin and assurance of pardon. It's a a physical and a dramatic declaration that the redeemed but still very fallen leaders of God's people, they still need a sacrifice. They still need blood dripped over them, and they need grace and forgiveness as much as anybody else in the church. but not so with Jesus. At some point, somebody had to break the chain. Someone had to stop the cycle. Someone had to put an end to the constant revolving door of generational sin and guilt on behalf of the priesthood. 
If every priest has sin, then the system is guaranteed to always be flawed and to never work. If every priest was always doomed to be a man wearing white robes, masking a dark heart, then we would be a people always condemned to live in shadows, but never to see color and light. To always live with promises made, but to never see those promises kept. To always live with hope, but to always have it put off. To always have it deferred and stretched out like a bad piece of propaganda that nobody can believe anymore. At some point, we needed a perfect priest. And it's at this point that the similarities and the attributes held in common between Jesus and the Levitical priests, they come to a full stop. In chapter 4, verse 14, the writer says that Jesus passed through the heavens. This is to compare the the transcendent, exalted nature of Jesus' priesthood to that of the temporary Aaronic priesthood. The high point, the pinnacle of the earthly priesthood's ministry was to enter once a year through the inner veil of the Holy of Holies in a temporary sanctuary in order to appear before God, but for a moment. But in contrast, Christ, He intercedes in the ultimate temple, the very presence of God Himself in heaven. And He He doesn't enter briefly or or for a moment, but rather eternally stands before His Father as the one who shares the very Father's essence as the Divine Son. And yet He continues to stand unblemished and without shame in full physicality, in full humanity made perfect. His humanity, it, it wasn't just a means to a cross. It wasn't just a vehicle to transport him to death and resurrection. The Son of God becoming human has always been seen by the church as having salvific power all its own, and yet always organically connected to his mission to die and rise again as well. And now today, even though his death and resurrection are behind him, his humanity is not nor shall it ever be. Jesus shall forever delight to share in our nature, never taking it off, never separating His divinity from it. He continues to live on as a human, ministering to us as human, empathizing with us as human, interceding for us in His humanity. And in fact, his humanity is the reason why we have a sympathetic access to the Father's throne. Chapter 4, verse 15, sounds like chapter 2, verses 15 and 17, which Colin preached a few weeks back. Our verse here says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The Greek word for sympathize means knowledge that comes from a shared experience. A closely related word means to suffer with or to suffer together. 
And please hear this morning that this is a very present sympathy that we have from Jesus. It's not a historical one. In this passage and in many to follow through chapter 9 and 10, the writer to the Hebrews fights our deism. And what that means is that he fights our tendency to live life as though God were there when we needed him, but generally absent when things are going well. Or maybe for some of us, our deism, our tendency to live life as though God were present in our blessings, but not in our pain. Or our tendency to live life with very little thought of God in our relationship to Him most days, as though God were a great historical figure to whom we owe a great debt of gratitude for winning some really important battle or founding some really important government in the past, and we've been benefiting from it ever since. And so we do our part and we pay proper observance to Him every week on Sunday mornings or maybe even just Christmas and Easter, as though God were some great national hero in times gone past. And to the extent that we see God this way, either consciously or unconsciously in our hearts and minds, you know, it it shouldn't surprise us that our emotions so often fit our deeper theology. Most of us don't get real excited about our relationship with George Washington or King Alfred the Great, even if we're nerdy enough to spend a lot of time reading books about them. It's hard to get excited about a hero who stopped being a hero when he stopped breathing. Or a hero who's far off and distant and doesn't care. But this isn't how the writer of the Hebrews sees Jesus at all. Here in this passage, the author gives us a very alive Jesus. An active high priest an interested high priest, a concerned high priest, an empathetic high priest, a human high priest. The sympathy and compassion that Jesus has for you and for me right now this morning, where we sit, it's not a compassion that he used to have when he walked in Judea with his disciples. And note that throughout this passage, the author he doesn't say that, that Jesus sympathizes with us because, after all, He's Almighty God and He knows all things and no molecule of, of any of our experience escapes His eternal mind. He could have said that, but that's not what He says. Instead, the reason, the basis for Jesus' sympathy with His people is that Jesus has suffered all the different categories of suffering that any of us will suffer. Have you suffered illness and physical pain to the utmost? So is Jesus. Have you suffered the betrayal of those closest to you? Those you were supposed to be able to trust the most? And those who swore undying loyalty and friendship and support to you and then have let you down in some way or betrayed you in some way? So is Jesus. Maybe you've suffered estrangement and alienation from loved ones who maybe have now died before any reconciliation could even take place 
So did Christ. Have you suffered the, the death of loved ones? So did Jesus on many occasions. They didn't all end like Lazarus in John 11, who was raised from the dead. Have you watched sin and the world and the powers of hell swallow up your friends and family members? So has the Lord, and on a deeper level than any of us can begin to understand. For He knows those powers like we do not. Have you felt utterly forsaken and forgotten and alone and cursed by all who know you, friend and enemy alike, and maybe even cursed by God Himself? You may have felt this way, but Jesus actually was. And while all of these sufferings lie in Jesus' past, His sympathy for our sufferings, His sympathy for His people remains always for now. It's never a yesterday sympathy. We're only a hopeful tomorrow sympathy. It's always a now sympathy. And so the writer to the Hebrews, he does not berate this doubting church for their struggles. He may warn them. He's already warned them. He's going to warn them some more in this letter, strongly at times. But he does not berate them for their doubts. He does not heap blame or shame upon them for considering a way out of their suffering and difficulty. Instead, he points them to a fellow sufferer. He doesn't tell them to suck it up and find it within themselves to deal with their doubts. Instead, he points them to someone who had even greater reason than them to doubt, to fear and struggle, because of his sufferings which so surpassed even their own. And he does this so that the Hebrew Christians might find in Jesus' suffering a source of sympathy and empathy and ultimately a source of victory. You know, when you would come, if you come to our house to cry, or when we come to yours to cry with you, and please always know you can do that. You know, you already know, you already know before you get to our place that there's, there's only going to be so much that we can do. Our power is severely limited in taking away anybody's suffering, in providing deliverance or providing any power to overcome. Our power is only one of empathy and sympathy, and even then, only as Jesus ministers it through us, And these are very important powers for us to use as a church family with each other. Last week I spoke with a dear brother in the church about some intense concern and challenges that his family is facing. He shared them with me. And in the past, I've shared some of our struggles with him. And I think think we do this because God has made us a certain way. I mean, when we get engaged or graduate from a difficult training program or have a new child come into our life or get a promotion at work, what do we do? We go on Facebook and we tell everybody. 
We email, we, we make phone calls to our closest relatives and friends. We meet friends at restaurants and tell them the story. We might even throw parties to celebrate the occasion. Why do we do that? Because telling others completes the joy. Our joy, our celebration isn't complete until we've shared it. And the same is true with our pains and our sufferings and our challenges. We weren't made to suffer alone. We weren't made to stuff it inside and lock ourselves in the closet and find a way to man up. It goes against our nature to try and do so because your sufferings and my sufferings, we can't consider them complete until we've shared them because that's how God has made things work. Jesus sympathizes with us as we go to him in private prayer, but he also knows that we need to feel his hands and his arms and his wet tears and in his incredible humility and in his mysterious wisdom, he's chosen to give us those tangible comforts through the hands and the arms and the tears of his people. Sons and daughters of the Father ministering Jesus' sympathy to each other. And so church... Since you have a great high priest who's been appointed, who has matured through all the sufferings of living in a sinful world to the point of death, and yet who sympathizes with our weaknesses, know that you can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace to help in your time of need. How do we do this? I think there's many ways, but I just want to highlight one of the ways in which we enjoy bold access to the Father's throne. Last week in our passage, the Word of God itself was highlighted as a means of grace, enabling us to find true rest in Christ as it shows to us our inner thoughts and motives and helps us to see our hidden, unknown desires and cleanses us. We also talked about worship as a means to rest. And in this passage, we see prayer being highlighted as a means in chapter 5 or 7. Most likely, the writer is referring to Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane in this verse. Although certainly Jesus offered up prayers to his Father all the time, no doubt involving loud cries and tears. But at Gethsemane, we find Jesus being asked to suffer by his Father, and his response is one of agonizing prayer. The author mentions that these prayers were to him who was able to save him from death, which is certainly a reference to God the Father. And at first glance, it seems kind of odd that the writer would say it that way, when we know that the Father didn't save Jesus from death. But instead, only a few hours after Gethsemane, Jesus is going to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? But I think it actually makes the author's point stronger. Jesus was asked to suffer by the one who could have saved him, but didn't. 
And as a result of this experience in particular, Jesus is able to sympathize with and to enter into the pain and suffering of you and I when we're asked to suffer and struggle by the same Father. The same Father who doesn't always take it away from us either. This was exactly the situation of the suffering Jewish Christians. And this is so often true for us in many different ways. Christ came boldly to the throne of his Father through prayer to find the strength to endure unimaginable suffering. That's what he's doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the incredibly great news of it all is that this access he had to the throne, it didn't just stay his alone, but it's now ours as well by grace. And this grace is ours because he now stands ministering before his Father as our mediator. Whenever we come, however we come, whatever we've just finished doing or saying or thinking, as dark and as awful as it may be, as his people, we always come welcomed into the presence of the Father because of the perfect person and the work of our high priest. So come humbly in the knowledge that it's all a gift, but come boldly. Come boldly knowing that you are entirely loved. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you for sending us a mediator. We thank you for sending us a mediator so that we can approach your throne above. Although we are down here, he is up there with you, ministering before you. And we are clothed and we are dressed in Him. His righteousness given to us. Full righteousness won because of His life and His death and His resurrection. And yet full sympathy for us because He's human as we are. And He knows our pain and He knows our sufferings. We thank You for such a Savior. We ask this week for grace and faith to approach you boldly, to approach you with confidence. For some of us, it may have been a while since we have come in prayer. And for some of us, we're struggling in the times that we do pray. And I pray this week, grace upon us. Grace upon us to work and to will and to motivate us to come to you in prayer to find grace, to find rest, to find sympathy in our sufferings and struggles and hardships, to meet us at our time of need. Do these things for us, we pray, Father, for the glory of yourself and the Son and the Spirit, and for our good. And we will give you thanks. In the name of Christ, amen.